Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary VTW, void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Steve Sippa. Steve, when asked about Noah Syndergaard's debut in the majors, Terry Collins had this to say, This is not a Broadway play that we're going to throw this kid out there and see how he sings. We know how he sings. Setting aside Terry's misunderstanding about how the theater world in New York City, and I assume elsewhere, actually works if you could form a revival of a broadway play starring only the 2015 new york mets what play would you pick uh well unfortunately broadway is not one of my strengths so uh cats and grease are the only two former shows i'm really uh knowledgeable about cats wouldn't make sense both excellent choices if there's a reds question absolutely this was a red reporter audio or red reporter radio i guess would be because um, you can get a cat latos reference in there that's very true but i mean i could see duda running around with the greaser jacket singing and dancing so maybe there's some potential there there's some dudes with long hair kirk newenheis a little bit of a greaser 
I'm he looks sure. like he's like I always compare him to Lorenzo Lamas. I'm pretty sure there's a Sandy in the movie, so yeah, there you go. Uh, end the play, whatever. <clears throat> um, I went with uh, damn Yankees. Oh. So we have to tweak it slightly, of course. Uh, in this world, or in this universe, um, a Mets fan makes a deal with the devil that uh, once again Matt Harvey could be a better pitcher than Michael Pineda, since apparently he's not anymore. Tough times. It is. That's the thing that's happened, I guess. This episode 117 of Amazing Avenue Audio. The uh, Ragnarok, greater than, greater than sign, 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 Thor's Day edition. Because yeah, stop trying to make Thor's Day work, you guys. I'm sorry. No. And I understand I had someone point out to me on Twitter that Ragnarok is like the final battle of the old gods and Thor dies at the end of Ragnarok. I, I understand all that. I don't think that's exactly when he goes into, like, stasis or something. I don't exactly until the apocalypse comes. But, like, this real apocalypse. I don't, don't know my Norse uh, mythology that well, to be honest with you. Well, but regardless... Marvel, in Marvel, they uh, they went into stasis, so... Yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> um, uh, but Ragnarok just sounds cooler, and that's the only standard we're really applying here, I feel like. Or at least the only one worth caring about. I'm uh, pretty impartial, so that works for me. I mean, we will talk about Noah Syndergaard, certainly. That's number one on the agenda, because he pitched last night, recording this on Wednesday night. Steve did not actually get to see it, because he was watching King of Sport in Philadelphia. We also should talk about that, too, because that's what you expect from the podcast. We'll also talk about what's up, if anything, with Jacob deGrom, who's had a, his share of struggles to start the 2015 season. I guess I, I you can fairly put it that way. Then I made the mistake of asking for topics on Twitter, and you responded with a lot of them, including King of Sport. Also, Payback Preview, which is the WWE pay-per-view this Sunday. Um, some stuff about Kirk Newenheis and why he's still on the team. Just Bartolo Colon, just Brock Lesnar. We'll get to all that fairly quickly. We'll dispatch with it in short order for each of them, but we'll get to all of them. Um, then later in the show, Baseball Prospectus's Jeff Moore will chat with me a little bit about the St. Lucie Mets. He's seen them a few times this year. And then we'll answer your emails. Once again, we're recording during Matt Harvey start and actually recorded uh, a good chunk of the Jeff Moore interview during a Noah Syndergaard start. So it was bad planning by me this week. But we will talk about Noah Syndergaard, who was good, I say, in his first Major League appearance. Um, I mean, you got all the obvious potential he has to offer and some of the issues that still plague him, that are going to be exacerbated at the major league level. I mean, the stuff to like, I will start with first. Um, I did a hit on ESPN Radio in Albany Tuesday morning, and I said the thing I was going to be looking for specifically is, you know, can he, is he comfortable throwing his secondary stuff? Can he command his secondary stuff? Can he get swings and misses with it? You know, can he spot it for strikes? Um, and he did all of those things at various times in the start. The thing that impressed me the most was he, was willing to throw it behind in the count when he got in trouble in, in, in tough situations. He wasn't just pumping fastballs. He threw a 3-1 changeup with guys on base. With the bases loaded, he went with back-to-back breaking balls, which we'll get to in a second because I'm hesitant to call it a curve at this point. It really looks like a slider to me. Um, and the secondary stuff was there, and he was getting swings and misses with it. Um, the fastball command wasn't, which, again, if you've seen him on the minors, not a huge surprise there. It came and it went. He had some success later in the start, you know, getting it 
down glove side, getting it down arm side, but when his command's not great, especially when the ball's up in the zone, sort of because of his mechanics and some other factors, he doesn't get a ton of plane on it. It's it's pretty true out of his hand, especially up in the zone. Because he they've tweaked his mechanics a little bit, so he just sort of stabs back and turns it over. You get a, I'm not going to say a long look at the ball, but it's not hard to time, even at 96 to 98. And, you know, you saw it in the start. You know, Chris Coglin in a... <laughs> it's sort of like, welcome to the Mets, kid. Chris Coglin will now just wear you out. But, you know, you get the jersey, you get the stirrups, you get the Mets hat, and you get Chris Coglin suddenly now just owns you as a pitcher. Uh, but when he was sitting on a 2-1 fastball... Cox for Christ for you. Even at 96, you know, they'll square it. You know, a couple uh, batter before that, Jorge Soler almost took his head off with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball that was up and straight. Uh, and he was tiring at that point, so I don't want to read too much into it. But, you know, that's something he's going to have to uh, deal with in the major league level. And then you saw it a little bit in AAA, too. These guys can square, you know, 70-grade, 80-grade velocity, even. But overall, I think it was a, a good performance. He was let down by his defense, which, again, welcome to the New York Mets. <laughs> um, at times, had to throw some extra pitches after Daniel Murphy lollygagged a little bit on a ground ball. We won't uh, delve too much into that, in this portion of the show, at least. But you had some issues out of the stretch with runners on. It's The, the potential is there. The potential to be a... Very good major league starter is there. And I can bring Steve sort of back into the conversation now with for this question is, assuming he pitches pretty well on his next start uh, this Sunday at home, what do you think happens when Dylan G comes back? I would prefer to see G put in the bullpen and send the guards stay at the, in the, at the major league level in the rotation. I think that Syndergaard certainly has a lot more potential than G does. Um give him another start or two, maybe we'll see that he's ready and that he should be in the rotation. Maybe he's completely bombed and he shows, you know, that he's not ready. Uh, you know, it depends on how he does, but I would rather see him stay. I think, I mean, I agree with you at this point in time. And if you think G is a good reliever, and there's an argument he could be a decent multi-inning fireman assuming that he can get warmed up quickly which i think has sort of been the scuttlebutt around why they're a little hesitant to move him to the pen you know we know how much better he is first time through the order you know first 50 pitches than he is later in games as a starter so even if the stuff doesn't necessarily take up in short bursts which i'm not entirely convinced it will i'm not entirely convinced it won't because you just don't know with starter to reliever conversions a lot of times I still think there's value there, especially with the bullpen now looking maybe a little thinner than it did two weeks ago. You know, Carlos Torres has had his struggles. Alex Torres has certainly had his struggles. Buddy Carlisle is hurt. Um, How confident are you right now, May 13th, 2015, in giving high leverage innings to Eric Goodell and Hansel Robles? You know, your (laughs) mileage may vary there. So I think that does sort of kill two birds with one stone in a way. You know, you get a little more upside in the rotation. You get a, a, a guy who can throw multiple innings, be a bridge in the bullpen. I'm not going to say piggybacks. I've said that so many times in the show, shows over the years and what they should do with G. But, you know, a guy that could go two innings, pitch a sixth and a seventh if someone gets in trouble. You know, pitch a seventh and an eighth 
some nights even, and sort of stretch that bullpen out a little bit. And it's just, you know, we're, the Mets team isn't hitting at all right now. And some of that is due to Wright and, and Darno being hurt, certainly. Um, you know, those are two of the, even coming into the season, I think you would say two of the four best hitters in the lineup. You could even go higher than that if you were so inclined. But any way you slice it, it's two above average major league hitters that they've replaced with, well, when when Ruben Tejada is playing second instead of Nelson Herrera, which has happened way too much lately, you know, two below average major league hitters uh, in Tejada and Ploiecki. You know, Daniel Murphy hasn't hit. Lucas Duda has cooled off, though I don't think anyone thought he was going to hit 370 for a full season or whatever it was at this time a couple weeks ago. <laughs> uh, my point in all this is not just to run down how bad the Mets offense has been lately. If you're listening to this show, you're well aware of that. It's that their margin for error is pretty fine. And if you think Noah Syndergaard's more likely to give you six innings and two runs than Dylan G, I think you got to roll with Noah Syndergaard. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not uh, fully convinced at this point yet that he can, but give him, you know, G is not due back for another two starts that Syndergaard should have. So, yeah, thereabouts. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, if Syndergaard, you know, this start wasn't particularly bad. It wasn't the best either, but, you know, no one is expecting, uh, you know, him to be a, well, no one should be expecting him to be performing like a Cy Young winner, you know, in his first start at the major league level. But, you know, give him a couple more starts under his belt. And if he's still doing decent, then just keep it rolling. I mean, I think if he pitches like he is capable of, like he showed in, I'm not even going to say flashes, in in short bursts here and there in, in the last outing, if he can sort of build on that and consolidate that over the next two starts, which is a difficult task to ask, you know, any young pitcher who's, you know, acclimating to major league life, to major league hitters, um, but they're going to have to make a decision. The thing that comes down is they're going to have to make a decision sort of quickly here. Um, I mean, I'm sort of on the 2015 team as a whole. And sort of the Syndergaard versus G debate, I guess, is a, a microcosm of that. Because, you know, as of recording time, the Nationals just uh, beat the Diamondbacks with a ninth inning grand slam from Michael Taylor. If the Mets lose tonight, suddenly the... Nationals are only a game and a half back, and we see it all the time on Twitter. Oh, the Mets are still in first place. Don't panic. You know, it's Memorial Day coming up. A couple of weeks ago, they were seven games up on the Nationals. <laughs> and once the Nationals get ahead of them, they're not a better team than the Nationals going forward. To have, to have given back as much as they have already of that cushion is a bad sign. Um, you know, they need to do what they can to put the best team on the field, which it seems like a silly... Thing to say out loud but in the past and i think even up to 7 59 p.m on, on may 13th they <laughs> valued other things you know they value team control they valued you know you know veteran presence they valued you know just put it now is it's push comes to shove now you got to put the best team on the field and you know you can't start Ruben Tejada two out of three days at second base. Maybe you need to move Dilson Herrera up the lineup and get him more at bats because he's been putting the best swings on the ball in this lineup over the last week or two. It's like you got to live and die with the kids. That was the whole point of this rebuilding process that we've been living with since 2011. 
is to get these prospects, if you want to call them that, or get the young get young players, develop them, turn them into good major leaguers. Well, that's starting to happen. And now it's it's time to see what they got. Because that's the sort of the road to the division or even to a playoff spot is going to be upside. Like we know what Dylan G is. Could he have a good 12 starts from here till August or so, or the trade deadline thereabouts? I mean, he's done it before. Yeah, hasn't he? Didn't he recently have some sort of streak of like, you know, 30 games in a row of going at least six innings with three it's, it's runs? Five or innings, something? and it doesn't really, and it only goes well, three right. runs. But. I knew it was something, but I mean, yeah, he's he's, he's demonstrated he's never, that he can he, be decent. Yes, he's never gotten bombed is basically all that stat means. Yeah. I think over the same time period, he's put in a league average or slightly below ERA because that's what Dylan G is. Um, and that, with this offense, even with Ryan Darno back, it doesn't really cut it. You know, I said over and over on the show, like you have to be willing to absorb risk somewhere, and they're kind of absorbing it in bad places. Like the Michael Kadire contract. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not killing Ma- Michael Kadire after, you know, six weeks where he hasn't looked that great. But I'm saying the, the Michael Kadire contract, even when it was signed, was kind of a risky move. You know, they're willing to absorb risk in Giannis and underperformance, but they're not willing to absorb, absorb risk in that same kind of risk with Noah Syndergaard or Steven Matz where the upside is much higher. Um, and I think at this point, like, I mean, I went, watching Noah Syndergaard start last night, I don't see his floor as that much lower than Dylan Jay. He's not no. going to go out there and get bombed. So that's the thing now. Now it's, yeah, it was one game. Maybe the maybe there's something there and the book gets out. There's something I'm missing from, you know, watching it on TV, which is while recording a podcast, which is certainly possible. Um... <laughs> Right, let's be honest, but it sure looked like a major league starter. Let's put it that way, um, which is what Dylan G is. And Noah Syndergaard could be, look, is he going to be a top of the rotation guy right off, right off the bat? No, I don't think that's likely. I don't think it's something you want to bet on. Could he be a number three starter the rest of the way? I mean, the stuff's certainly there for that to happen. And every little bit helps at this point. You know, we're in the thick of it now. This is a team with designs on competing. <laughs> it's gut check time in April. It is. It's gut check time in April. Or May, excuse me. Yeah, but, but it's like, seriously, this... I said this privately, like, two weeks ago. I didn't think the Mets are going to be in first place by May 20th. And they may not be in first place by May 20th. We have about a week and a half. Yeah. And, you know, it's... They've been, what, seven and... I can do math. Seven and nine since seven and ten. Seven and ten since the eleven game win streak ended. And they've played pretty much like a seven and ten team during that time frame. And that's not again out of the the bounds of what you might expect from a a team that's probably only true talent level a few games over five hundred and has lost their two best offensive or two of their better offensive players and i don't mean to downplay it you know the team we thought we were going to see coming into the season is really not on the field right now just because the sheer i mean what about eight or nine guys like major pieces that are not playing 
that's going back to even like Wheeler and Edgen and Parnell and Black in spring training. I forgot about Wheeler. Yeah, that's insane. And the fact that they're doing as well as they are, all things considered, yeah, that's great. But guess what? It's it's the games are being played now. You got to win the games. There's no, you know, you don't get a pat on the back for competing with injuries. Everybody competes with injuries. That's the nature of the game. Players get hurt. You know, the Nationals had us. The Nationals still don't have Anthony Rendon back. They're hardly the Mets are hardly the only team that's had some bad injury luck early, if you even want to call it that. So at this point in time, it's like, yeah, you you. You have the luxury to evaluate, you know, two more Syndergaard starts or so before you have to make a decision. You can even probably float a six-man rotation for a couple times through after G comes back if you wanted to to go in that direction. And it's possible that between now and then somebody else gets hurt (laughs) because that's the nature of pitchers. Knock on wood, of course. But I don't... I just... Again, I have no... I think the problem is... I'm not saying they won't start Syndergaard going forward. I'm not saying it's slam dunk the right decision. What I'm saying is I just have no confidence in the organization and the field staff to get aggressive with these kind of decisions at this point in time. Honestly, a lot of these minor league bigger guys, their maturation has come at the worst time because... You know, now that we had a hot start and you're going to have these problems. If the Mets were, you know, four games come to 500 or, you know, not sniffing third place, would we really be having that much of a, would we really be doing much soul searching about starting Syndergaard over G if the games mat- if the games didn't matter, you know? No, and I guess you can say that, you know, it's, it's good that we're having this conversation because right, the, right. the tone of the pot has to be very different if the Mets were four games under 500 right now. <laughs> But it's just, I mean, look, the proof is in the pudding. And and did I think even after the 11-game win streak they were going to outlast the Nationals over the course of the season? I don't know. I mean, maybe. You have to be really optimistic. You have to be pretty optimistic. But I didn't think they'd give it all back this quickly. Well, it's a testament to how good the Nationals actually are, I guess. Yeah, but they, I mean, they they have, you always knew with the starting pitching that they would put together a run like this. It was just something that was going to happen. Um, but then Bryce Harper suddenly turning into uh, Mike Trout. Mike Trout, or what we thought Bryce Harper would be, has certainly sped things along as well. You know, Ian Desmond not going 0 for 23 or whatever he was last time. Uh, the Mets played the Nationals. You know, you just expect, you know, it's, it was it, the old scouting adi- adage, tools play. Oh, you know, yeah, whatever. The games aren't played on paper, but you collect a lot of good players and good things will happen to you usually. As a general rule. That's kind of how it works. That's why <laughs> you go out and get good players. Makes sense. One good player who hasn't been quite as good as the Mets might have hoped in 2015 so far is the reigning Rookie of the Year, Jacob deGrom. We will not be using the phrase sophomore slump on this podcast, so I guess technically I just did. Um, but are you worried at all about Jacob deGrom, Steve? No. I mean, like like I was saying with Syndergaard, you can't expect a young pitcher to 
come on the scene and become a you know a Cy Young caliber pitcher right off the bat. Degrom did do that to his to his credit last season. He was extremely good, uh, but you know you have to expect some regression. I don't think that he was going to be. I don't think that he is was capable of pitching like that for his entire career or or you know more than just you know a half season whatever so now we're starting to see some of that regression does that mean that he's broken or he's going to be terrible from this point on no but i just don't you know you you shouldn't expect him to be able to maintain that level of production so if you look at the underlying numbers if you're looking for changes you know what's gone wrong between 2014 and 2015 yeah, the strikeout rate's down a little bit, but it's, you know, he's faced 179 batters this year. I'm not going to go crazy about that. You know, his control is still there. Ground ball rate's about the same. Line drive percentage is actually down. I mean, the biggest change is the balls that are hitting in the being hit in the air by players against him this year are going out of the park. And it's not even really as egregiously unlucky as you might think. He's a 10.7% home run per fly ball percentage, which, you know, isn't... It's high, I would say, but not abnormally high. Again, you're looking at it from the pitcher's point of view. I don't want to get into, like, XFIP and crap like that because I think there's something to to kind of contra- contact or degree or type of contact that, that pitchers <laughs> give up influence and those kind of things. You expect Jacob deGrom, who has good stuff to give up you know, less hard contact even on balls in the air, but he was not going to sustain a 3.9% home run per fly ball rate, which is what he had last year. You talk about him being a like a sinker ball pitcher and attempting to get a lot of ground balls, but he, he really hasn't so far. And even I sort of said way back when I did my sort of Jacob DeGrom primer when he got called up, you know, he throws a lot more thigh-high fastballs than you would think you know, based on sort of the reputation he had coming up. You know, he doesn't get a ton of, of ground balls. And when his fastball command's not great as it has been, and you know, Dan Worthen I think was blaming it on overthrowing and you know, trying to repeat whatever he did last year. And whatever it could just be, you know, boilerplate stuff to tell reporters to sort of get him off his back for now. But even if it's just a blip, I think, you know, going forward he's gonna get up some home runs. Um you know, he needs to miss a few more bats, but if you look at the sort of the Brooks data from the last two years, he's getting roughly the same amount of swings and misses with all his secondary pitches. The The biggest change for him has been you know, teams are making more contact on his four-seam fastball, and they're hitting it a lot harder than they were last year. And that's, you know, that you can probably, you know, as much as you want to diagnose anything out of this kind of data, and I don't, um, you can sort of read it as a uh, you know fastball command issue, which I think it, if you watch his starts, it kind of has been. You know, guys are squaring his fastball more than they were last year, both the four-seamer and the sinker. Now, is that a long-term concern? No. Did this only happen because I was allowed the uh, prospect hate man to convince me to uh, <laughs> publicly declare him a top-20 pitcher in baseball this year on like a preseason thing I did? Entirely possible. We know the podcast jank works in mysterious ways, but... I'm not worried about him. You know, is he more maybe a number three starter going forward than a number two starter? Eh, all right, maybe. You're splitting hairs at that point. Hey, yeah, you are. I think he'll be fine long term. Again, it's, he's had a couple starts where he's had some balls go out of the park on him. 
you know, in Wrigley Field with the wind blowing out and Yankee Stadium that is overrepresented in the sample of his 2015 so far. I mean, he weighed, when he pitched against, uh, where did he pitch last? Was it the Orioles? Yeah, against the Orioles. Believe. He looked great. And uh, these sort of concerns have only been revived, you know, coming off the Cubs start on Monday. So I think we are sort of yo-yoing a little bit on him from start to start, which is never a good idea. But I do think there is something to that he's probably going to give up more home runs going forward than he did in 2014, if not probably as many as he's given up so far this year. <laughs> That's about as much as I can physically hedge on this, I think. <laughs> It's completely reasonable to expect. Yes, this and is it's like... and it's not really necessarily indicative of anything bad. So it just is what it is. Yeah, don't throw thigh fi- thigh high fastballs to uh, Anthony Rizzo. Basically, that's what it comes down to. So as I said at the outset, I. Solicited topics on Twitter that you might want us to talk about, even though I already had like over a half hour long interview in the can with Jeff Moore, and we're already a half hour into this show, so it would be the perfect length if I just cut it here, went to the interview with Jeff, and then answered your emails. But this podcast is hardcore. This podcast is hardcore, and I'm a man of my word most of the time. So uh, let's get to your tweets. Well, I just finished beer number one, and I'm about to open beer number two, so I'm ready. I'm also ready. I still have about half a beer left. Even though it's World Cocktail Day, apparently. I feel bad now that I didn't make a, uh, make a cocktail for this show like I usually do. It's, that's poor. That's very poor. It's bad work by me. Once again. <laughs> it's funny, because I'm looking at my favorites now, and they're all just like... Before I got to the stuff I favorited to keep track of for this, it's just all I hate bot, bot specs tweets. <laughs> Literally all it is. Um, so the first one comes from Marco, our uh, our Italian listener who came all the way from Italy for the, uh, the live show we did in Foley's last month. It just says Terry's lineup compositions. So for example, tonight... Doesn't hurt his batting eighth again, which is obnoxious. And he didn't play yesterday, so Ruben Tadaka bat ninth. Um, look, as as we know, you know, sabermetric orthodoxy. Over the course of the season, that you know how you order your lineup doesn't make a huge difference. From like sort of the worst or the least leverage lineup to the best leverage lineup, you're talking about a difference of. 10 runs and that includes things like um you know those those worst lineups are lineups no even terry collins isn't doing like hitting your pitcher fourth (laughs) and stuff like that and leading off with i was gonna pick a met that's struggling but that's pretty much all of them right now so but that kind of uh that kind of stuff so really you're not even talking that much over difference between batting delson herrera eighth and batting delson herrera second which is where i would hit him but again, it gets into that sort of like Terry does things that annoy us. And he does worse things than how he orders the lineup. And you get stuff like bullpen usage, just actual playing time. See, Delson Herrera not starting two of the last three games. Um, so I think that's 
the bigger issues here. I mean, the lineup thing always comes down to it comes out at 4 o'clock when there's something else to talk about on Twitter. So I think it gets overplayed to a certain extent. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's not like it's anything that you're not going to expect from most other MLB managers because you could have this exact same conversation and replace Terry with Jerry, replace it with Willie, replace it with whomever you want. And we've had and we have had all of those conversations with those names. So it's true, you know. It's. <clears throat> I mean, the, if you don't like Terry Collins as manager, you don't like major league managers in general, which is reasonable, I oh, think. Yeah. I mean, there's like no team, like there's no people that actually like no group of fans. I feel like that actually like their manager. <laughs> Maybe the Giants and, and Bruce Bochy at this point, but I feel like there's even after they'd won a couple of World Series, there was like annoyance of when and where he was hitting like Brandon Belt. That was a thing for a while. So, you know, Nationals fans probably don't like Matt Williams. Braves fans don't like Freddie Gonzalez, and they're probably fairly justified in all of that for various reasons because you know, sort of the way baseball managers approach the game is not the way baseball fans approach the game for for good and for ill in whatever the case may be you know they have more information than we do but they don't always necessarily even act the way they should on that information our next one's from adam it just says if tulo can be had no probably not I was going to do like a little jingle for for Tulo Avenue Audio, but I don't have my laptop with me that I do a jingle on. And it would have just literally been, Troy Tulowitzki is probably not available. Yes, it's Tulo Avenue Audio, and that was going to be it. There's no more lyrics, because he's probably not available. Even if he is, as we've discussed ad nauseum, he's going to be expensive. and I, I, that's, Is that a cost that we really can afford? You know, I'll let everyone decide for themselves. But I mean, the, the going rate for a, a superstar <clears throat> is much higher than what he has left on his deal. Just like on the free agent market. It's not a bad contract. It costs money. It's going to affect their dollar per war ratio. But it's not a bad contract. No, I meant more in, in terms of dollars and things given up. But... Yeah, okay, I mean, that's that's certainly one a, a, a more reasonable way to look at it. But still, I think if you get Troy Tulowitzki, you can get Troy Tulowitzki. Yeah, yeah. The Mets can't get Troy Tulowitzki because they can't afford the contract for reasons not relating to their desire to keep a high dollar-per-war ratio. Mm. Joseph, why, Kirk, why is Kirk on the team? Um, why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just is the Daryl Siciliani, Corey Vaughn. Like, there's not a ton of outfield depth. Kirk is a decent enough center fielder still so when Juan Ligaris is hurt as Juan Ligaris is hurt right now Conforto hit a double today so let's start the uh, promote the... Conforto I'll uh, be more with that on Jeff in our next segment but yeah I mean I, I, the leash tends on these, these kind of guys tend to run out in the next couple of weeks so because they have to designate him for assignment, and he has been a valuable fourth outfielder in the past, I don't think they're too. They're not going to look to pull the pull the trigger here with too much alacrity. They're going to give him every opportunity to sort of get out of this funk. And it's we're talking about like twenty five. I guess it's thirty plate appearances, or thereabouts. It's really not, you know, spread across thirty games. It's just not super meaningful at this point. 
I mean, he's shown decent numbers in limited playing time, and it's not like he's going to be playing a major role this year. So, whatever. I'm been, I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for however long. Joseph also knows about Murphy being terrible. Eh, I, he, I, by the end of the year, like I feel like he made the All Star game last year, and still by the end of the year was sort of like ended up where Daniel Murphy ends up. He may he'll be hitting 240 at the break or something, and he'll just end up where Daniel Murphy ends up every year. It'll be 280, 320, 400. I just can't get. I mean, should he be batting higher in the lineup right now? I don't know. Whatever. I just it's podcast policy that I just don't have any strong opinions on Daniel Murphy, and I'm going to continue with that podcast policy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of his. I don't dislike him either. He is just kind of there for me, so. Kevin wants to know about New Japan Pro Wrestling, the king of sports, a.k.a. your favorite wrestling promotion. Oh. So you went to go see King of Sports uh, as part of an ROH show. Yesterday at the, it was at the, what is it called now? The 2300 Arena? Right, yeah. Formerly the, the Arena. Formerly the New Alhambra Arena. Also known as the Bingo Hall. Or the ECW Arena. But uh, how was that show? It really was amazing. I've seen, I think, I saw an ROH. I've seen Liger and ROH before in Massachusetts. I saw their All Japan, like. (laughs) show with Kojima and actually Hanma back before he was uh, apparently the best wrestler in the world and a couple other guys I think Keji Muto was on that show mm. wrestling is Keji Muto not as the great Muto back in like you know a million Shining Wizards a match phase I've seen various Dragon Gate shows with them uh, with ROH Double Bills I don't think I've actually seen an R- I'm trying to remember the last ROH show I went to I think it was at Hammerstein <laughs> And I want to say it was Nigel McGuinness defending his ROH title against Colt Cabana. <laughs> so 2006-ish, probably, if I had to guess. Uh, but the show was excellent. Oh, sure. The, the crowd is very good, so that obviously always makes you know any kind of match better. But majority of the performances were exceptional. <clears throat> um, there's a bunch of, I mean, you know, you could look up the card online, but... I think for me the best match of the night was um Kushida versus Roderick Strong. Uh, it went for about 15 minutes and I really can't even specifically recall specific moments, but just the match, you know, there's a lot of like false finishes, there's a lot of dives, there was it was just very good. Did they go full bore with the Okada entrance? Did they go kind of over the top with it? <laughs> Uh, there was. There I mean, it's was not money. gonna be. It's not gonna be full Tokyo Dome, obviously. But there, there was there was um, money raining down. But uh, that match, the the Okada um, Nakamura versus the Briscoes was probably you know if if the first match was one was one, then that match would be one A for me. Yeah. Um, that was very good. I've never seen the Briscoes in person. And they I've seen a lot of the Briscoes in person. Right. <laughs> a and, lot of mid two thousands ROH shows. And obviously, you know, I haven't seen the um the New Japan Pro Wrestling wrestlers in person, but that was a very, very stiff match. That is not particularly surprising given the four right. people and, involved. Yeah, and also like I was just very like I was in literally I was in the last row, I think it was row eight. But the seats are just so close. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's know, no bad that... seats in the arena, really. Right. So I mean you could, you know, you could hear the chops. You could you could see you know the 
that you can see the 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 sweat and the spit you know when they get hit and everything so that added so great um if you haven't been there and i don't know why you would have um it is just like a tiny warehouse like under an overpass in south philly that that literally is what it is with no like really accessible parking in the area so you just end up parking illegally um i may or may not have parked illegally i honestly wasn't sure but i was just kind of crossing my fingers i wouldn't get a ticket and i didn't so it's all good and Our next question is from Joshua. Wilmer Flores post a higher slugging percentage than Michael Kadire. For reference, entering play tonight, Michael Kadire is slugging 375 and Wilmer Flores is slugging 415. I do not think that he will. I think Kadire will post the higher slugging. I think it'll be close. I uh, yeah, I agree it will be close, but... I mean, I think Wilmer Flores is... He's not going to give you much at this point, but he can give you some empty slugging. So I could see him sticking around there, somewhere between 400 and 420. And I think Kadire... I think Kadire gets there in the end. But... Probably not... <coughs> ideal. That it be that close. <laughs> well, I mean... Unless Wilmer Flores hits, like, 20 home runs. Right, exactly. Does not seem likely. Does not seem likely like Michael Kadire will either, so... Yeah. Who was the last Mets hitter? We have Duda last year. Duda but... and Granderson both hit 20. Did Granderson hit that Granderson one? got to 20. I think Marlon Bird got there the year before. So. Oh, I forgot about Marlon Bird. That's right. And before that, it was like Scott Harrison. Oh. I think that was also the year that Davis hit 30. They've had some guys. They've had guys hit home runs. There's just been like one guy and nobody else on the team has. Right. That's uh, That's an issue, I guess. Yeah. You need you know, ideally you have more than one or two guys at twenty home runs on your team. I know it powers down in the in this era and everything else, but ideally, Phil just asked Bartolo, always Bartolo. Uh, Phil, I will direct you to the quote I gave in the uh, my ESPN Albany segment, which was simply: "If you don't like Bartolo Colon, you don't like baseball, apple pie, America, all the great things." It's Bartolo yeah. Colon's awesome. It's true. I mean. Martello Colon, I'm trying to figure out a way he starts the All-Star game. I think if he goes like 12-1, 12-2, 13-2, somewhere in there in the first half, he'll end up starting the All-Star game. He deserves it. He does. He's Bartolo Colon. As, as the DH, though, for the National League, not as the pitcher. Is it an American League park this year? Uh, I have no clue. Kansas City? No, it was in, no, it was in Minnesota last year, so it should be in a... In a National League park this year, I don't think it really comes up where the. I don't know. Well, in that case, he's the pitcher starting. does not usually end up hitting for themselves in the All Star <laughs> game. I think historically speaking, but should they be... should make an exception for Bartolo. He should be the starting shortstop then. Mm-hmm. In that case, it's at the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. Oh, okay. Bartolo could hit it out of there. I feel like <laughs> that park plays pretty small. Well, let's find out. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, ideally, we will. Next from Chris, why did the Mets give up on Colin McHugh? I also wouldn't mind listening to you talk about McHugh's development in general. Um, I mean, they gave up on Colin McHugh because he was getting bombed in the majors. Right. He had, like, the first star where he struck, like, 13 players or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, it's one of the highest game scores for a starting, de- starting pitcher debut in Major League history. I'm right, sorry, not in Major It might be in Major League, but in Mets history. And then after that, he just kind of progressively got worse and worse. So what happened, and... I don't really blame the Mets. No, yeah, I don't. Is uh, 
he added a couple miles an hour to his fastball. He's given some of that back this year. And his slider just got two gray jumps better. And, and he started happens. throwing it a million times, yeah. I mean, he throws more sliders than fastballs at this point. You know, slider, cutter, slutter thing, whatever you want to call it. And when I saw him in the minors, and even when he came up to the majors, it was clearly his fourth best pitch behind the the fastball, the the lollipop curve, and the changeup, which he didn't throw much and I actually liked. The slider was just sort of there. It was kind people, of flat. People who didn't really follow his minor league career uh, you know, need to understand that it's not like he was... A you know a major prospect. He was kind of just kind of there. You know he was more farmhand than prospect. He had put up decent numbers, but his stuff was just kind of yeah. Yeah, it was like four average-ish pitches. So trading him for Eric Young Jr. at the time was and they had know, already designated him for assignment at the time, right? So, so they I were going to lose him one way or the other. It was a reasonable trade. Yeah. You know, I don't think that anyone could have expected that he would have you know built on what he had to the degree that he is, was one of the top pitchers last year. I mean, he's obviously a very intelligent pitcher. He knows his stuff. He knows his game. Um, and, you know, good for him, but it's just one of those things. Yeah. I, I always wonder, like, in the back of my head, did he just finally take to the Warthen slider, like, a couple of years later? <laughs> you never know. The Warthen slider uh, contains multitudes, I guess. Our next question is from Andy. Conventional wisdom is the first two months spent seeing what you have, then you have two months to fix it. Aside from Carlos Gomez, how would you fix the Mets? Um, I mean, Carlos Gomez covers a lot of the problems, I feel like. Also, Troy Tulowitzki, who is probably not available for the Mets, at least. Um, I mean, ideally, like, Darno and Wright come back, though Wright is still hasn't resumed baseball activities yet, so who knows how that's going to go. And then you go from there. And they hit enough that the starting pitching carries you the rest of the way. Sounds that like seemed to work pretty well when they were winning 11 straight games. Even if it doesn't work to quite that degree again, it's a workable plan. Um, the team as composed doesn't really have too many glaring weaknesses that can be easily fixed. So. Right, but there's also no... it's like. There's no real big above average. Right, that's 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 kind the, of the issue. Yeah. So there's no major weaknesses, but there's no major strengths. They're just kind of the team is just there. So short of going, so short of somebody getting hot or going out and getting a big a big bat, there's not much you can do. They've kind of boxed themselves into this uh, roster, wallowing in mediocrity. Yeah. And finally, from at Bunklore, just his payback preview. So I actually had to look up, I actually had to, we both had to look up the card <laughs> before, it's gonna the, be thrilling. before the uh, podcast started because neither, I mean, I remember that Dean Ambrose was in the main event now. That's the only thing I knew about the event. Um, and then I vaguely remember they were doing another Rusev-John Cena match when I saw the card. What, you're not um, looking forward to Ryback versus Bray Wyatt? All I know is that they've somehow like elevated Dean Ambrose only to find like another hilarious way for him to job. That's probably going to be honestly. That should be the best match of the card. I think so. I think yeah. I I'm holding out some hope for uh, Neville against Barrett. I just don't think it'll get enough time. Yeah, that again. That that should be. I mean, anything that Neville, you know, Adrian Neville does is going to be good. So, yeah, my hot take of the day was that uh, Neville will have a better WWE career than uh, Sami Zayn or Kevin Owens. I could see it. I mean, Sami Zayn is just you know. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Sami Zayn. 
you know, credit where credit is due, though. He's a good wrestler, but he doesn't do anything particularly stand out. Kevin Owens does stand out a little bit more, but, I mean, he kind of fits in that prototypical mold of just monster heel kind of thing. Yeah, I don't but, know if that works when he gets to the main roster, either. Right. I mean, there's there's things Adrian Neville does that nobody else can do. You know, that's that's fact, to quote Tyson Kidd. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's... I guess the the tag team title match, two out of three falls, could be interesting. Cesaro seems to be pretty good at that match type. They could, again, I think it's going to be like three falls stuffed into 12 minutes. Though there's not a ton of stuff on the card right now. I'm sure two falls will come within 30 seconds of each other. Yeah. I remember, I've seen that work before. There was a... Uh, Generico Sammy Callahan. What, what is it now? What's, the, what's Sammy Callahan's ridiculous character name in uh, oh, NXT? Sol- Solomon Crow. Solomon Crow, whatever. So, but a Sammy Callahan El Generico, like two out of three falls match where they did like a. I don't think it was a small package spot. I think like a, they got like a quick, like heel hook tap out in the first thirty seconds or something, <laughs> and then went like fifteen minutes after that for the next two and it worked all right. I'm not opposed to it, but I just. I'm not holding out great hope there. I hope Dean Ambrose would do something ridiculous in the main event, because he's kind of got to carry it to a certain extent, I feel like. Just because... I like Seth Rollins okay, I just don't like the way they've handled his... Like, I'm all for, like, a sniveling heel champ, but, uh... Just, it, it, it... I don't love the way they particularly character like the wwe sniveling heel champ never works for me no i guess it's what it comes down to it's too much weasel too too weasely it's too weasely yeah there's no like physical credibility there right exactly he loses credibility and but i don't see them putting the belt on roman reigns yet i don't know obviously obviously, they'll find some weasley way for i i assume they're either building to like an actual or in Rollins' one-on-one match at SummerSlam. Well, okay, I guess that's a good way to sort of wrap up this. What's you think sort of the medium-term plan here with the title? Uh, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know. I know that Brock Lesnar is rumored to be, you know, the, the main event in SummerSlam or whatever. But I could see them having. I mean, I guess they could. I could see them having Lesnar come back and just squash him at SummerSlam as a big baby face. That would work. Um, I just don't see if you do that. Like, who's the heel challenger going from there? Right, I mean, and honestly, I really don't want Lesnar's champion again. I mean, I I enjoy Lesnar when he comes back and just you know wreck sh- wreck shit. To excuse my language, but yeah, okay. <laughs> but you know, like as as a champion, you know, it just the, the championship kind of loses something when it's literally it just disappears for months at a time. I'd rather see someone who is there. Actually, I should say now that I realize that I missed uh, Dan's tweet, which just said Brock Lesnar. So here's my here's my Brock Lesnar thing. Uh. Is Brock Lesnar the best wrestler in the world right now? Nah, nah. See, I think he is. And granted, I don't watch a ton of New Japan, but, I mean, it's just the total package. I know he doesn't wrestle that much, so maybe you you ding him on, you know, could he really carry, you know, a day in and day out touring schedule at the same level of performance? I guess is a, a black mark you put on his record, but I just... He's the total package for me. I mean, I'm not going to disagree that he is a physical specimen, to quote Keith. But, 
I think that other. I mean, right, right. So, okay, who are you taking over Lesnar then? Let's put it that way. Um, as I've said in 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 a past podcast, I think that the best wrestler in the WWF right now is Adrian Neville, and I'm going to stick to that. That's it. I look. I like Pac a lot. I always. I think he's. I think that so much, and even even <clears throat> from when he left Dragon Gate, and certainly while he was in Dragon Gate, um, you know, he can he can work. He's a underrated at working heel as he did in NXT. I think he's a pretty good baby face too. Um, and he's he fills in the gaps between the big spots a lot better than he used to. But I don't know. It's just something about the it's way also- Lesnar uses his physicality that just is really impressive to me. Right. I mean, there's different types of wrestling, you know. And and as a as a Lesnar related side note, last night at the at the match uh, at the New Japan ring of honor match um when taaki wanatabe was wrestling jay lethal he was he was suplexing the hell out of him and uh one of the one of the highlights of the night was he went up to the top rope to do another suplex and he shouted suplex city bitch (laughs) the rock lesnar is big the world all the world over yep all right now we will take a short break we come back i will talk with jeff moore about the saint lucie mets Now we welcome to the show Jeff Moore, a prospect writer at Baseball Prospectus, but most importantly for our purposes, uh, a man that has seen a lot of the St. Lucie Mets recently. So Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, when talking about the St. Lucie Mets in 2015, normally I could open with any number of players. You have recent first round picks there in, in Dominic Smith and Michael Conforto. Some interesting international names uh, with aggressive assignments. Both uh, Johan Urania and Amin Rosario were skipped over Savannah this year to start in St. Lucie. But instead, we are going to start with Robert Gazelman, who I believe you have now thoroughly thrown me to the backseat of the bandwagon and are now driving the bus there. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a totally, uh, completely unintentional uh, bandwagon driving on my part. Um I'll be honest, I, I really didn't know much about him. I had seen the name, but, but coming into this year, I you know, from what I'd seen, he was young for his age last year, or for his, uh, young for his age, young for his level last year. So, you know, that was something. But in general, you know, you didn't read much about him. He wasn't on anybody's top ten list. Um, you know, so I didn't really anticipate a whole lot out of him uh, coming into this year. And uh, I've now seen him three times, and, and frankly, he gets he gets more impressive every time I see him for for different reasons. Um, and it's not, you know, I, I want to make it clear because I, I somehow I've become the loudest voice in the Robert Gesellman <laughs> uh, camp. Uh, I guess just from from a proximity standpoint of having seen him so much, but it's um, you know, it's it's not that he's got this high ceiling or he's. He's he's not Noah Syndergaard. He's not you know gonna gonna be a top of rotation or, or something like that. But you know I I enjoy when I I see that kind of stuff and that kind of polish and that kind of pitcher on a guy that isn't getting a lot of attention. I didn't know a lot about coming into it. It's nice to have a blank slate every now and then. 
So right. it's a it's a guy I've tried to talk about because frankly he's just not getting enough attention. Right, and I think uh, when you wrote him up as sort of like a potential mid rotation arm, and I had him when yeah. I saw him as a number four, and it's like yeah, that's not that's not going to light the world on fire. But you know, you and I both see a, a fair amount of games and a lot of low level games in in the minors to you know to see a potential number four sort of out of nowhere is kind of cool because that doesn't happen very often. Well, and, and anybody that you're watching that you can realistically say that guy's going to be a big league starter. I mean, forget forget where in the rotation he's going to slot. Forget the role. Forget, you know, all that kind of stuff. Anytime you see a guy and you say that guy's going to be a big league starter, first of all, that's a good day at the ballpark because at at the, the Florida State League level, over half the starting pitchers I'm seeing are never going to be big league starters. You know, it's... You get a a twenty five year old lefty down here throwing eighty six, and it's like, well, he's not going to be anything. You know, anybody's going to be talking about anytime soon. So that alone makes it nice. And when it's a guy who's not getting a lot of attention and kind of pops up on your radar, that's yeah, it's fun. So you've gotten three looks at him in in fairly close succession. What's the one thing that stood out for you? What's I guess what's the first thing that stood out to you and made you take a, take notice of him? Well, the the reason he's doing so well this year is is his fastball command. It's um, it's just ahead of where most Florida State League pitchers are and ahead of where most Florida State League hitters can handle. Um, you know, because the fastball is not overpowering. He sits 90-92. I've seen him touch 93 a couple times. It's a, it's a two-seamer, you know, running, sinking, fastball. It's got good movement. He breaks bats. He runs on runs in on right-handers' hands. Um, you know, but he commands it really well. He hits his locations. When he misses, he tends to just miss. You know, just off the plate and that sort of thing. Um, it's. It, I mean, he commands it better right now than some big league pitchers. Um, he, he's not quite there with with the command of, of the fastball at the big league level, but. but He's you know, leaps and bounds better than than most Florida State League pitchers at throwing his fastball where he wants to throw. And I don't just mean throwing strikes. That's your dif- your difference between command and control. Uh, you, you know, he, he throws strikes, obviously, but a lot of guys do. He's throwing the kind of strikes he wants to. And that's that's really what separates him right now. So it's interesting that you touched on sort of his fastball command. I don't know if I want to call it necessarily a, a carrying tool in this case, but it's the kind of thing where he's going to, I mean, you compare it to, I know a lot to Alex Reyes over at Baseball Prospectus, a sort of the advanced command versus sort of advanced velocity guy. And I think sometimes, especially in the lower levels, it's easy to fall into the, the, the easy scout trap. You get, the, you get the big velocity readings or good pop times, good stopwatch times. It's sort of harder to scout pitchability, I think, especially at that level, but it's something you don't see that often. Well, it is because, and, and you know, I, I compared him to to Reyes simply because I saw them on the same day, not because that's any kind of fair comparison to, to Gesellman or anybody else. Reyes was just incredibly impressive in terms of raw raw pitching ability, raw you know, raw stuff. But I said in the article, Gesellman's a better pitcher right now, you know. Now he doesn't have nearly the margin for error, and that's what makes it tough sometimes. Alex Reyes just needs to be near the strike zone. He's throwing ninety-eight. You know, Robert Gesellman has to have command. If he's just throwing strikes, but they're not good strikes, he's going to get hit. 
Now, he's got some movement, so that helps. That helps miss some barrels and create bad contact. But it's the kind of thing where, yeah, you can get away with that a little bit in the Florida State League. But as he moves up, that's that's going to be a problem if he's just throwing strikes and not good strikes. But he's already throwing good strikes, and that's really what's what's so impressive about him right now. And the thing I've seen, the thing that, that has made me like him more and more, because the stuff has been about the same. I've seen three, I think it's three last starts. Uh, I think it's been three in a row for him. I know it's been the last three times I've seen seen the St. Lucie Mets. But it, the stuff hasn't changed. He's still 90-92 with movement, with command, plus curveball. But what I've seen is the ball lot. And, you know, why shouldn't he? It's his best pitch. And it was very effective, and, and I get why he wants to use it. It's it's the one pitch he has that really misses bats. He needs strikeouts. This, the last two times I've seen him, especially uh, I saw him last night, he barely threw any curveballs last night. Last night was primarily fastball changeup, which is good because the changeup still needs some work. It's It's got a chance. It's got a chance to be an average pitch. It's it's effective. Um, but it's cl- it's clear that he knows he needs to work on it. And he's doing that. And, uh, I mean, he threw 10 to 12 curveballs the entire night last night. That's his best pitch. And he still went eight strong and only threw 88 pitches. You know, gave up one run. Um, You know, he threw a great game without basically without using his best pitch that much. And it was because he's putting it in his pocket and trying to work on his other stuff. And he got by just on fastball command and movement. And, again, he sort of gets into the – difficulty evaluating these guys at this level uh just because you don't know if if they are going out there to work on something in particular right well that's that's why multiple looks are important if i would have if 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 last night would have been the only time i saw gesellman i would have i would have put a lower grade on his curveball not that it was any less effective of a pitch but if i only got one look at him i might say you know, so I might make a note in the report saying something like needs to use it more. But I would probably assume that he doesn't have a lot of confidence in it or that it just, you know, that it's not a major part of what he throws because he, he just didn't throw that many of them. Um, so that's where it, it does help to have some background knowledge on a guy, even though you want to have a clean slate. In this case, it's firsthand background knowledge, which is the best kind you can have because I know I've seen the curveball so I can – I can grade it out, and I know when he's not throwing it, that's on purpose. It's not because he doesn't have confidence in it. Plus, when he did throw it, it was when he got a guy with two strikes, and he was just like, all right, I'm done with you. See ya. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had enough of you. I don't want to waste any more pitches. Here's a curveball. You're not going to hit it by. So I knew what I was seeing, but if that was your only look at the guy, you might question whether or not that was really something he threw a lot or if that was one of his main pitches or just something he was working on or whatever the case may be. So that – you're right, that does make it difficult because you get limited looks sometimes and you're not sure you know, if a guy's working on something, where he is developmentally, you know, is this the good version, is this the bad version? There's just so many variables that come into it. That's why multiple looks are so important. So based on what you've seen from him so far, uh, is he a, given that he can sort of dominate at this level already with just two pitches in command. Is he a guy that's probably going to see double A in the second half of the year? Yeah, I would I would absolutely say he needs to be challenged. Um and the the Mets have obviously shown that they're willing to do that, so I would be shocked if he's not 
in double A sometime after the All Star break. Um, or, or you know, I'm trying to think of when they they promoted uh, Mats and Nemo last year. They almost always give guys a full first half if the team's even remotely competitive. Yeah, which which makes sense, and I get that. And there's, I'm not I'm not saying it needs to happen now, um, but you know, he's seeing him seeing him just cruise through a, a pretty talented lineup without using his best pitch, tells me, all right, he's got this league figured out. There's really not a whole lot left for him here. He's ready for the next level. And so, yeah, I would be shocked if if uh, by the second half he's not up in Binghamton. We'll move now to another guy who's probably ready for a new challenge, and that's the Mets 2014 first-round pick, Michael Conforto, who despite being in a bit of a uh, bit of a production dip or so over the last couple of weeks has been mashing throughout his Florida State League tenure. You wrote him up over at Baseball Perspectives. Of course, you can just search for Michael Conforto and your report's right there. Uh, free to everyone to check out. But on Conforto specifically, um, is he at the point now where he's ready for a new challenge? Uh, probably. Um, I don't know that it's essential that he be promoted immediately the way there was some clamoring for when he was batting about 350 through, you know, the third week of April, he, you know, he got off to a hot start. He has cooled off a little bit. His talent hasn't changed. <laughs> it didn't change when he was hot. It hasn't changed when he's, you know, come down, you know, back down to earth a little bit. Um, I think this was probably the right assignment for him. Um, you know, jumping him all the way to double A seemed like an unnecessary challenge. And you don't promote a guy after two or three hot weeks, you know. I I, I know the one of the one of the, the reasons people were, were calling for it was because he was getting pitched around. You know that's already kind of stopped. It's you know I guess if you're if you're getting intentionally walked <laughs> a ridiculous amount, that's not going to help your development. But I think he's in the right spot for now. I think he's another prime candidate to be moved mid-season. Um, and I think that's probably been the Mets' plan from the start is send him to send him to St. Lucie, and assuming he handles it the way we expect, we'll bump him up mid-season, and that's probably been their schedule all along. He was a refined bat coming out of college. Um, you know, this is not a guy that's going to need a ton of development. He's pretty close to being a finished product. Um, I actually was... You know, again, you try to come in with a blank slate, but it's not really possible. You know about these guys before they you know, before you get your first look at them. And I had not seen him in college because he was uh, he was a West Coast guy. But the uh, the hit tool was a little bit better than I had expected, and the power was not quite as predominant as I had as I had expected. So he was he's, he's been he's shown to be a little more of a well rounded hitter uh, than I had kind of anticipated. Um, but it, it was all pretty close. My report has it pretty close to what uh, you know most of most people had seen. And you know he's going to be a big league regular. He's going to be a guy you can slot in the lineup, bat, bat him five or six, and, and and you know send him out there and get some production out of him. He's I don't know that he's an all star. Maybe maybe borderline. Um, I've seen a little bit a little bit of uncomfortability of, you know against some lefties. But again, that's part of the reason why you don't promote him just because he's had a couple of hot weeks. These are the things you iron out. It's the little stuff. Yeah, he's batting three fifty, but 
you know, you get a you get a lefty who's never going to see the big leagues in there who's throwing 88, and it makes him a little bit uncomfortable. Well, you know what? That's what 500 minor league at bats are for. You can work those little things out and keep him from being a platoon guy down the road and let him be a better all around player. So that's why you don't rush guys. That's why it's you don't make decisions based on three hot weeks in April. And he's going to be on the same schedule that the Mets had him on all along, and he'll probably end up in Binghamton. He'll probably take the same flight up to Binghamton as Gesellman. So you talked a little bit about the uh, about the bat. Now, I've gotten some varying reports on how he actually is as a left fielder. I only got to see him, I think, once in the field in Brooklyn because they were DHing him a fair amount after the college season. Now, obviously, he's not going to win a gold glove out there, but he's a serviceable major league left fielder yeah he's not a butcher out there he he moves well for you know a guy his size a thicker guy a a guy who's already maxed out his frame he moves all right he tracks the ball fine he uh he takes good roots no the range is not going to be great but you know he's in left field that's okay um but yeah he's he's going to take some good roots to balls and, and make some plays he goes to the ground all right um, he, he won't be, I mean, eventually he'll be a bad left fielder. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, this is not a guy whose, whose body profiles to age terribly well. Um, so yeah, in his thirties, he's going to be a, a liability, but for the next, you know, in his twenties, for the next six, seven years, he'll be a perfectly fine left fielder. Yeah, absolutely. Another first round pick in the St. Lucie lineup who's not performing quite as well as Michael Conforto is there. 2013. First round pick Dominic Smith. Um, longtime listeners of this podcast will know that I have fairly strong feelings on Smith, but I think even I didn't really expect him to struggle this much in the Florida State League, given what he did in Savannah last year, at least from a you know a box score, line score standpoint. So, what's been his biggest issue so far in 2014, 2015. You're you're right. You you don't expect anybody to bat a buck 50 through a month of games, especially somebody with his background and pedigree. And, you know, last year obviously was a disappointment because anytime a first round pick who's a first baseman hits one home run in an entire season, that's obviously a disappointment, but he hit for average. He controlled the strike zone you know, adequately well, he got on base. So there were some positives you could take out of it. Now, I have seen Dominic Smith, you know, a number of times in a number of situations. Um, in in batting practice, he puts on a show. He did it last year. I mean, last year I was raving about him, having seen him in, in BP and spring training. That's the only look I got at him. And I said, man, the, the raw power is legit. The, the feel for the barrels legit. Um, you know, this guy's, this guy's really going to hit. So I was very surprised when he only went out and hit one home run and I had not seen any game action last year. And then, you know, I saw the same kind of BP this year. It's still impressive. The, the tools are still there, but having seen game action this year, and I saw, um, a, a number of at bats in spring training, both inner squad games against his own teammates and in minor league spring training, when they bring the other teams in. And now I've seen three games for St. Lucie this year. So I've seen 20, 25 game at-bats from him. 
it's the kind of thing where you don't hear me talk about them a lot because I generally try to stay positive. Um, well, I will say it, you've seen you've seen good BPs from him, which puts uh, you ahead yeah. of me in that in that regard. I have. I've seen him put on a show. I've seen him pull the ball with power, with authority. I've seen the ball jump off his bat. Um, you know, I've also seen uh, lack of interest and terrible body language during BP when he's more interested in talking with friends behind the backstop than than watching his teammates take BP. But uh, again, those are the kinds of things where if you're hitting, nobody cares. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's an issue because he's not playing well. Um, the, the, the gap between batting practice and in-game is just incredibly gigantic. Um, his at-bats are the most underwhelming thing I've seen in quite some time. Um, I have yet to see him really put together a, a good at-bat. Um, he's consistently behind in the strike zone. Now, I'm the guy who is always applauding plate discipline and patience. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm that guy. If you read my, we've all read your Brandon Nemo reports. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've you've seen me you've seen me say that that's a good thing. But I'll be the first guy to tell you when you're too passive. You know, when you're when you're taking hittable fastballs, especially when you're a run producer, Nimmo's going to be a top of the order guy. He can be patient, and you know, he he needs to be a little more aggressive. But it's going to work for him because of his profile. Dom Smith needs to hit some home runs. He needs to attack some fastballs. Um, his at-bats are consistently taking hittable pitches and then putting a terrible swing on a pitch late in the at-bat. Um, I've seen more weak contact. I, I've, I, he, just, he doesn't take that batting practice swinging into the game. He doesn't attack pitches. There's no ferocity to his swing. There's no assertiveness. There's no aggressiveness. He just doesn't look like he's even trying to drive the ball with any authority. Um, and it's, it's very strange. I've never quite seen anything like it. Um, in my, you know, in my time doing this where you see the talent there at times, you know, in practice situations, and then he gets to the game. And it's like, this guy doesn't have any chance to get a hit here because it's, Fastball taken for a strike. Fastball taken for a strike. Flailing at a curveball, and it's it's very strange, but it's it's not good. Uh, I wish I had better things to say, um, but I, I just I've seen twenty at bats, and I've yet to see him barrel a ball up with any kind of authority and drive a pitch, and frankly, even put a good swing on it like he's trying to hit a double in the gap. So it's underwhelming would be the word I would use. So he is still one of the youngest players in the Florida State League, and you've yes. seen you've seen, you've seen, seen it, if not in game action. Of course, you always right. want to see it in game action. But given the gap that exists right now, and given how young he is, and even given that it's a first base profile, sort of taking it all in, how big of a red flag is that for you as an evaluator? Well, it's the kind of thing where if if everything else was positive, you'd say, okay, he just needs to figure out how to use what he's got against this level of competition. But when you incorporate it with the bad body language, the low motor, you know, some of that kind of stuff, it all adds up to a guy who you really start to have questions about. Now, again, 
you know, body language and, and energy and motor. These are all things we talk about. These are footnotes. But if a guy's hitting 300 and hitting, pa- hitting for power, nobody cares, right? You know, nobody cares if a guy's low energy if he's being productive. There are lots of low energy guys who are perfectly good major leaguers. That's, that's not a death sentence in and of itself. But when it all comes together, it really starts to make you, make you wonder and say, is this a guy who's going to turn it around? Is something going to click here? I don't know. You're right. The talent's still there. That's better than not seeing it. <laughs> you know, it's it's better than if he's he's still in there taking crummy BPs and and you see the slow bat and you see that you know his his bat speed's still there in batting practice. That's just not the swing he takes into the game. So I, it's a red flag. There are red flags. Um, I, I'm concerned. You know, as far as a, as far as a developmental standpoint. Um, one of the next pieces I'm going to be working on is a look is basically trying to figure out how long can we give a guy credit or should we give a guy credit for his background, his draft status, his pedigree, what we've seen in the past. You know, Dom Smith obviously showed a lot of people a lot of good things. The guy was a high pick and he was a high pick as a guy who who was never expected to offer a whole lot else defensively base running, anything outside of hitting, right? This was a guy who was who was first base only from the minute he was drafted and was not thought to be a great defender, was not going to be a good runner. So he got drafted strictly because of his bat. So a lot of people had to see a lot of really good things on Dom Smith. I can't disregard that just based on 20 at-bats that I've seen that have been terrible. I can't completely write that off. But how long do I factor that in? You know, how long does he get credit for that? I don't know. But it's it's troublesome. We'll try to move to happier things. And a couple of the Mets uh, top prospects in Florida State League, a couple of recent international league signings or international free agent signings. Uh, Johan Urania and Ahmed Rosario, very aggressive assignment. Um, <laughs> both are being skipped over Savannah. Rosario is now the youngest player in the Florida State League. So he did spend like a couple weeks in Savannah before Brooklyn kicked off last year. Both players struggling a little bit. I know you're a big fan of Urania and certainly a fan of Rosario as well. Um, what's sort of driving the, the performance issues right now? And are, is, is it just they're, they have to, a ways to go to catch up to game speed at that level? Or is there some other underlying issue here? Yeah, I I do really like both of these guys, and I'd seen them in spring action, and I'd seen them in inter squad games, and mostly on the complex, you know, before this year. And now I've seen them a number of times this year. Um, I I don't quite get why they were jumped where they were. I don't quite get the benefit. I'm just philosophically a, a big proponent of letting guys have success at a level before you promote them to the next level. Now, in their case, they didn't fail anywhere they were just skipped but i i don't quite understand the the benefit of it um you know challenging guys is great i've, I've talked to some scouts and i've said this to scouts and they said, well you know it's a challenge for them well that's good but you still want to set guys up with challenges they have a chance to succeed at um i love urena i've been one of the the guys screaming about him saying how great the tools are and the power and that sort of thing since last year um, he's overmatched right now. 
um, the, the tools are all still evident. Um, it, it makes it very difficult to grade the hit tool when a guy is struggling against pitching. He really has no business facing. Uh, you know, how would you how would you how would you judge a twelve year old facing sixteen year olds? He could be the best twelve year old in the world. He's probably still struggling. It's it's very difficult to judge his hit tool. Um, for instance, he he's having really he's having some serious struggles picking up off speed pitches. I've seen him just get peppered with breaking ball after breaking ball, changeup after changeup, and he's just swinging through them. Now, is that a bigger problem? Is that something that's probably going to stick with him for a long time? Or is that because these are just significantly better curveballs than anything he saw in the New York Penn League? I don't know. I would imagine it's some combination of the two. Um, I don't think it's enough to, you know, to be a major concern yet. But, you know, he's, he's looked really bad on a lot of breaking balls um, to this point. Now, he still squares up a fastball with the best of them. The bat speed's all still there from both sides. I like the swing. All the things I've said positively about Urena, I, they're all still accurate. I still really like him. He just, he ought to be in the Sally Lake. I don't, I don't quite understand it. Um, with Rosario, um, I'm not convinced he's ever going to be an impact hitter. I don't think he's ever going to be a great hitter. Um, but he doesn't have to be. He just needs to be a good enough hitter. He just needs to not be an automatic out. The glove is so good. The arm is so good. He's such a good defensive player. And frankly, the bar is so low at shortstop right now that he doesn't have to hit a whole lot. Um, you know, he's, like you said, he's the youngest guy in the, in the Florida state league. He obviously has some, some physical development left. He is a guy. And I don't think this has really been touched on enough. There are some guys that, you know, we just automatically, because they're tall and skinny, we say, Oh, well, you know, they're going to put on 20 pounds and that'll really help with their strength and blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't see his build as the kind that's going to put on a lot of weight that really can handle a lot of additional weight. I don't know how much bigger he's going to get. Um, I think he's one of these guys that's always going to be a skinny guy. Um, but that's okay. It means he's probably going to be able to keep his range, keep his defensive mobility, keep his his creativity in the field, all the stuff that really is what makes him an elite prospect to begin with. I mean, he's a really good defender. So as long as he can can be a somewhat capable bat, he can even be a below average bat and still be a big league shortstop. And that that may be where he ends up. Um, I don't see him having the issues with pitch recognition and things like that 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 Urania is. It's just a matter of he's a little overmatched by the velocity at this point. But um, I'm just I can see some feel in the barrel and things like that. I'm just not convinced he's going to be a, a really a really good hitter, but you know, as long as he's good enough, that glove's going to play. Thank you. I've been saying the same things about Rosario since I saw him in Kingsport, but all I ever hear is like the, the sort of the big, and I mean, like, there's a, a, some stuff to like there in the bat. He's got, he's got quick wrists. You know, he can, if he sees it, he can turn on it sometimes, but I just, I've never seen, as I think I said when I saw him in Kingsport, I never really saw $1.7 million worth of tools there, but well, uh, and that I mean that gets into how much you value a a legit defensive shortstop. Yeah, I mean, and he got. I haven't seen him this year yet, but he, the improvements he made, at least from Kingsport to Brooklyn, were significant defensively. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's gotten just from my looks last year to this year, he's gotten much more consistent. Um, just on term in terms of the routine play, 
coming through the ball, shoring up the footwork, basically all the all the nonsense you have to get out of the way to let pure ability do what it needs to do. The ability's never been in question, but he gets a little flashy for his own good sometimes. He you know wants to wants to field a ball off to the side or wants to to do a little flip when he doesn't need to, and that's just you know that's what eighteen year olds do. I mean, that's, you know that's not a reason for concern. That's just why you send eighteen year olds to to a ball and not the majors. But he, he's definitely refining things in that regard. I've seen a, a noticeable difference just in the consistency on defense from last year to this year. I haven't seen that much growth offensively, and that's I guess that's kind of what what paints the picture for me. It's not that he won't hit at all. But I just I don't see how much growth there's going to be there. Um, whereas I was seeing that with Urena from from last year's spring to this year's spring, and now I'm seeing that stagnate. And I think a lot of that has to do with with the competition he's facing. He's getting abused by better breaking balls than he's used to seeing. And you know, I guess eventually he'll see enough of them and he'll make an adjustment. You hope, but it just it seems like he was. He was set up to fail this year when when he could have been set up to succeed in Savannah. All right, Jeff, we'll let you go on this. Give us another name that you saw in St. Lucie that might be of interest. Um, it can be like even in a sort of you know roll four bench. Yeah, no. Uh, well, Akil Morris is interesting um, as a reliever. Is a ton of moving parts, but. Um, you know the, the 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 arm is live, the, the slider's not good, but he's got he's got an interesting little changeup that actually doesn't do a whole lot, but it's got a huge differential between the fastball and the velocity from the fastball. The changeup it's like eighteen mile an hour differential, and because he's got this like giant windmill delivery, it's it's super deceptive, even though the pitch doesn't really do all that much. Um, you know it's it's not anything anywhere close, but it's a live arm and a and a good body, and there there could be something there. Um, Champ Stewart, I've seen a lot of, I'd really like to see him barrel some balls up. I don't know that, I don't think it's going to happen, but what a good athlete, what a good runner and a good center fielder. So it would really be nice to see him hit a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not sold that it's going to happen, but it might be the kind of guy where if he can just make a few adjustments, uh, the glove's good enough that he could carve out a, a bench roll something. Um, they've got some, some other interesting guys there. All right, Jeff Moore, prospect writer for Baseball Prospectus. Thanks for coming on. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. Now it's time for your emails. And of course, before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 117. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Join our Facebook group at Facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Very easy to find all of those. Find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. So I encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can find me on 
Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Steve Sippa. You can find him on Twitter at Steve Sippa. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Our first email is from Ian. Hey, podcast. Can you explain how Ligaris' defensive metrics are so low? Haven't we seen him be ridiculous on a consistent basis? This is making me not trust defensive metrics as a stat in general. Eric Young Jr. has a higher range factor. Give me a break, right? Um, so here is the thing about defensive metrics. And we're still like well into the small sample size range for any defensive metric. I mean, even a full season is not really a meaningful sample for these uh, for these metrics. But, you know, I could ask you, Ian, like, how is UZR calculated? How is defensive run save calculated? And you can't tell me. And I can't tell you because they're completely black box metrics. I mean, we know basically what they do. They divide the field up into zones and they use publicly available MLB stringer data as sort of the input into where these balls end up and whose zone they they are assigned to. So you're introducing any number of biases into this. They don't adjust well for positioning. They don't adjust well for shifts. And again, you can't actually tell me. So I, I bring this up with any sort of defensive metric. And I'm not morally opposed to them. I think you just have to understand their limitations. Where it is, if you want to tell me a guy, if you want to tell me Juan Ligaris is an average defender so far this year, which is basically how the numbers come out. He's uh, zero defensive runs saved, 0.3 by UZR. How is he getting his numbers? That's true if somebody's good or somebody's bad. You know, it's like when Wilmer Flores was a positive defender last year by UZR, how was he getting his numbers exactly? Now, they divide them sort of into buckets to a very limited extent. So for Juan Ligaris in defensive runs saved, which is baseball info solution stat that goes into uh, baseball references war, He's been plus one run by the arm, minus one run by uh, plays made, which is essentially a range factor type stat. However, if you look at some of the other numbers, by uh, total zone, which is also also a zone-based defensive metric, he's one of the best center fielders in baseball. The reason we don't talk about total zone is it doesn't go into either of the war metrics which is really what this comes down to. The conversation goes around UZR and DRS because they they feed into into, uh, F4 and B4, respectively. If you look at the underlying data on Juan Ligaris' defensive season, the ball's in zone. 59 balls have been put into his zone. He's caught 55 of them. That's pretty good by center field standards. He's also made 22 plays outside of his zone. Also pretty good. Again, not maybe elite level, but on a similar pace to what he's done the past couple of years when his DRS and his UZR numbers were through the roof. Like his revised zone rating, which is really just plays made divided by balls and zone, higher than you did the last two years. Now again, not the all and end all, we're not including arm, we're not necessarily including plays made out, you know, made outside of his zone for whatever that's worth. You look at the inside edge fielding, which is all done by video scouts. And again, there's going to be biases in there, but they're easier to control for because we can see all the data in front of us. We know how it's being calculated. Um, his numbers are really good. He's made 100% of the routine plays, 
which are defined as plays that he has at least a 90% chance of making. So pretty good. He made 100% of the plays he's likely to make, which they define as between 60 and 90%. Again, we're getting into stringer bias issues, but you can adjust for this. Did not make the one sort of even chance play he had an opportunity at. Made two out of the three unlikely plays and made the one remote play. Now again, it's not a large sample size, but sort of those remote plays, the unlikely plays, that's where you get a lot of your value. Because those balls are often, I mean, yeah, maybe it's a, a dink in front of you sometimes. But very often, you know, it's a double into the gap you're taking away. Or you're robbing a home run. So there's more run value there. And again, 71 plays he was likely to make. He's made all of them. So where is the, I don't understand where the data is coming from. Overall, I don't worry about it. Do you think Juan Lagares is a good center fielder? Absolutely. Do you think he's one of the best center fielders in baseball? Absolutely. Then don't worry about it. Exactly. Have you seen anything this year that indicates... Has he been particularly bad in the field this year, even by his own standards? Nope. So don't worry about it. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't think he was a 30-run-per-year center fielder when they were spitting that out. I don't think he's an average one when it spits it out now. And even to say, oh, well, it you know it's a three-year sample. And even that. No, no, it, it, it doesn't really work that way. You know, the biases are are always there, but I, I don't I don't I don't worry about Walmagaris's glove. There are many other things to worry about on this team. Uh, and, and defensive metrics, yeah, I mean they they can be useful. They can, you know, especially historically or for large career samples. I, you know, I'm, I take them a little bit more seriously. I mean, is it certainly possible that Juan Lagares will put up a season at some point where he's only five runs above average just based on opportunity and the quality of defenders elsewhere in the league? Yeah, it's it's possible. But again, I don't worry about that. We worry about the true talent level. Don't worry about how it affects his war. Exactly. As, as long as he's out there robbing, you know, hits, which he is doing, then it's all good. We have another defensive question. It's one of three questions from the non-synonymous Max Tolkoff. One, are we being too reliant on the eye test for Wilmer Flores? After all, Johnny Peralta probably wouldn't pass the eye test, whereas Derek Jeter is a gold lover. I'm not saying Wilmer Flores is the next Johnny Peralta, but how else we define the next Johnny Peralta? other than by letting people that look like Johnny Peralta play shortstop. Yes, Flores was taken off of shortstop in the low minors by this organization, but do they use defensive metrics in the low minors? Yes, the errors are bad, but wouldn't they also be happening if he were at third? I don't think he's a very good third baseman either. But <laughs> you probably play there for me. But, but, but to the question here. So the Johnny Peralta thing, and I love this comp, because the whole argument for Johnny Peralta being a good defender is he positions himself very well. But who's really positioning the infielders on Johnny Peralta's team? Probably the coaching staff. They could position Wilmer Flores. They have the best like advanced scouting data, the best spray charts in the world. Put Wilmer Flores in the best position to make as many plays as he can. You could still put a better shortstop there and he'd make more plays. <laughs> so positioning only goes so far. And positioning is not an inherent skill. And I don't think Wilmer Flores has been in the league long enough to position himself. Like, perhaps you could argue Johnny Peralta has been. Also, Johnny Peralta, you may not know this, Steve. Very good hitter. I've heard. He he can he can swing it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> for his career, in case you were wondering, he's a career 268, 331, 428 hitter. Just okay. slightly, and actually, you have to keep in mind, he's been really up and down. In the last three years, he's posted OPS pluses while playing shortstop of 121, 116, and 117. Yeah, that'll play. That'll play. 
Johnny Peralta could literally field like Wilmer Flores. Optimally, we that that's what, and he'd still be a yeah. very good major league shortstop. If Wilmer Flores, if Wilmer Flores could hit like that, then and really the story of Johnny Peralta is like he's generally been slightly below average but playable at shortstop. And if I thought Wilmer Flores was that, I'd be much more amenable to letting him keep play shortstop, keep playing shortstop. I think he'll hit a little bit. I think he can get to, if not peak Johnny Peralta season, then 103 OPS plus. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility at all. Yeah, I think he could be a little bit slightly better than the major league average. Maybe 1% to 10% in that range right yeah. now. But he just said the glove's not good enough to put it. If I thought he was, let's see. Find a good Johnny Peralta season. Two thousand eight Johnny Peralta. What did he hit? No, oh, that's a different era. I found like the even the offensive environment then is so different. Um, you know, if I thought he hit would hit, if I thought he was a, you know what, F it. If I thought he was like last year's Daniel Murphy, with the. Uh, I would take that from Flores in a second. I'm, I think it would be more... Um, I got a three, two. Let's say 2013 Daniel Murphy. And I don't think he'll hit 280. But I think he'll walk a little more than Murph. But, you know, sort of the 320 on base, 415 slugging. I think that's, that's doable. It's reasonable, yeah. Minus 11 defender. That's also reasonable. Right, and you throw in the extra positional boost from shortstop yeah. against second base. That's... I don't even think he's a minus 11 defender there. And I know I just said I don't care about defensive metrics. I'm using like broad swaths. I'm using it as a, a descriptive rather than sort of prescriptive. Or, or qualitative rather than quantitative is probably the better way to put it. Um, but I mean, the reason we're relying on the eye test for Wilmer Flores is that we can see him making terrible plays. Like even if he's positioned perfectly, he's so slow getting out of his crouch and he's so slow getting rid of the baseball that no matter where you position him, it's just not going to play up enough. Number two, are the Mets only one pitcher deep in the rotation? What happens if they lose two more starters? Maybe it's not reasonable to think you can contend if you lose five starting pitchers anyway. Yeah, it's not reasonable yeah. to think you can contend. Like, that you'd basically turn into last year's Braves or recent vintages of the Blue Jays at that point. And that's a lost season. See also the 2009 Mets. Ugh. Yeah. Um, are, you know, are they so somebody else gets hurt? Steven Matz comes up. Yeah, we are somewhat deep in pitching. I mean, depth. you can yeah, you know, could Verrett make a start? Could Bowman make a start? I mean, we've had worst. We've seen a lot worse than Logan Verrett and Matt Bowman, and I'm not a huge fan of either. Um, oh, you're not years. a fan of you're not a fan of Matt Bowman, huh? Oh yeah, no, it's shocking. <laughs> As reported first on this podcast in this episode, not a huge Matt Bowman fan. But you know, we sat through Brian Lawrence and Brandon Knight, Brandon Knight, Jeremy Gonzalez, yes, Phil Umber, yes, Jose Lima. You can keep going anymore. You want to get out while you're no, there? No, no, I'm starting to have flashbacks. Jorge so. Sosa. Oh, Jorge Sosa. He's having a pretty decent career in Korea. Maybe. More power to him. Good for him. Who was it? Was it Willie or Jerry that he could fall out of bed and throw a slider for a strike and they just like couldn't spot it after that at all? 
Three, Daryl oh. Siciliani is tearing it up in AAA. What's the scouting report? Better or worse than Kirk? Um, I would have to go back to my notes, to be honest, because I've never, I don't think I've actually ever written up Siciliani. Actually, I must have written up Siciliani for the site. But my, what I was going to say is I <coughs> generally don't write, give guys full write-ups unless I'm throwing a major league grade of some sort on their future. And I've never really seen it for Siciliani. Oh, yeah, I did write up Siciliani. He was the 15th best position player prospect I saw in 2013. So that's not very high praise. <laughs> uh, he was in double A that year. I saw a lot of him. I saw him for 10 games. Wow. I saw a lot of Binghamton that year. I mean, I see a lot of Binghamton most years. That's not actually particularly... How far is, uh, how far is Binghamton from where you are? Four and a half hours. Oh, really? Is that far? Yeah. Okay. But I always see him at New Britain and New Hampshire, so... Oh, that's true. So it's in division, so they usually come there a couple times. Um, yes, he struggles with lefty breaking stuff. He can be overly aggressive, and his swing has a lot of moving parts. And I wrote him up as a fifth outfielder. with medium-high risk. So, yeah, not a... Uh, not great. And he's hitting in Vegas a lot. But you know what happens in Vegas, Steve? Dude's hit. Wow. Um, you know, is he better than Kirk? I mean, I think he might get a chance to take that role on the team. But I don't think it's a, a market improvement. And Kirk had ridiculous numbers in, in AAA and in Binghamton. Right. Which I can't say the same <clears throat> for Siciliani in a much... Not, not I mean, much, but a less friendly hitting environment. I'm a fan of Ceciliani and and Travis Tyrone and and as you know as guys that I've seen as Cyclones you know basically move up the system and everything like that. So yeah. I'm I'll always be rooting for them, but they don't really they aren't really any kind of upgrade if even over Kirk. And Kirk has shown that at times he can produce the major league level, whereas these guys you know just by due to the fact that they are minor leaguers haven't. So I I really don't see the need or or the want to really you know swap one for the other because you're not necessarily getting any kind of upgrade. Yeah, I think uh, Siliani came up. We were talking in with uh, Alex Nelson and our draft preview or our draft review last summer. Sort of one of those Omar tools guys that don't really have that many tools <laughs> picks that he liked to pick like in rounds two through five. Um, yeah, he's not. A great runner anymore. He doesn't take great roots in center. He's probably worse in center than even Kirk is. He doesn't have Kirk's power. You know, maybe a little more bat to ball there. Um, you know, I could throw a Jesus Feliciano comp on him, maybe. Does that work? Do people remember Jesus Feliciano? Honestly, I don't. I'm, I'm thinking he almost, hit four, right he almost hit 400 in Buffalo one year. He was up in 2009. I feel like 2009 or 2010. I mean, I feel like I've seen him actually. Did he hit a triple at any point as a man? Uh, probably. <laughs> then I may have seen him. He had that kind of profile. Um, yeah, it was sort of like not really even a fifth outfielder. But, you know, I, I think Siciliano get major league at bats at some point because that type of guy usually does somewhere but it's just not i mean they have the long story short here is they have some outfield depth issues with mayberry and kirk not hitting because they don't have any replacements 
you know, maybe they might be a little better off trying to fill the right side, right, the right-handed side or the short side of that sort of fourth outfielder platoon with Tyrone and Corey Vaughn. Maybe I don't know. I'm like try. I was trying to talk myself into it as I was saying it. I'm not entirely sure it's working. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, is Vegas just queers everything. Our next email is from Michael. Hello, gents. Why is Terry Collins so obsessed with starting Ruben Tejada? Yes, Flores had some defensive miscues. He also leads the team in home runs, which is kind of amazing. Toy Cannon hit 350 in Binghamton and 370 in Las Vegas. We're really kind of doing a Jimmy Wynn nickname now. For I mean, he's not. Jimmy Wynn had the Toy Cannon nickname because he was small. Omar Flores is not small. No. And it is not profile like Jimmy Wynn. Um, yeah, Terry insisted his team, which is struggling mightily to, to score as it is, is somehow better with a 300 career, career slugger in there. When it comes to forcing this guy into the lineup, Terry obviously just can't help himself. Can Sandy just DFA him so we don't have to hold our breath every night when the lineup card is posted? Would Terry resign if that happened? For the record, this loyal listener and emailer hopes so. On both fronts, thoughts, Mike. Like, I don't get it anymore. And actually, he's been starting over Delson Herrera, which is even weirder to me. Um, you know, it's this weird thing where, like, everyone for a while thought Terry hated Ruben Tejada because of the whole, you know, right. uh, coming to spring training on time meme. And now it's gone in the opposite direction where Terry likes Ruben Tejada. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, so, I like, we I just got at... a quote recently that Terry Collins was finally impressed with the way he, he's working, like, working at his game now. So I don't think it's like, I don't know. I got nothing. I don't I mean, get it. Look, I, I mean, looked it's, up. It's, 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 uh, Tejada's <clears throat> fine as a middle infield uh, utility guy. He's yeah. fine. I mean, are they better carrying someone like Wilfredo Tovar to be a late inning mm. caddy for. I mean, just to be like a late inning caddy for Flores? Yeah, I mean, I could see that argument. Um, but I mean, he's fine as long as he's not. Yeah, you want to give him like a once. Like, like, was I thrilled he started Sunday for Herrera? No, but yeah, I find you give a get, diet guy a day off. Two yeah, out of three days is just ridiculous for a Ruben Tejada. And it's, Tejada has really been, he's been, he has not really been replacing Flores very much. I mean, Flores has started 27 of 33 games, and he's gotten one pinch hit appearance. In, yeah, there's a little recency bias there. Yeah, so, I mean, he's he's been you know, replacing Herrera more than Flores. Yeah, which I'm actually more opposed to, frankly. No. Well, Herrera is not leading the team in home runs or, or whatever it's true. it is. So. I mean, if they play him every day, he might catch Flores pretty quickly, actually. <laughs> well, they just sort of amazing Paul Luduka bat, bat flip on uh, <laughs> on SNY. That was like, he got some serious air underneath it. Ah, uh, Willie and David Wright smiling in happier times. Mm. So and have you go back to back to back off Cole Hamels, which I think is what that was. But uh I've always owned him. It's true. Those are your emails. So again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And we'll wrap things up this week with our IFK Gothenburg update. But we gotta take it seriously because this is Spenska Kuppen weekend, Steve. The Svenska Kuppen final. Wow. It's about time. I've been looking forward to it for a while now. So I went to our man on the ground, Anders, for some information on the Svenska Kuppen. It was first played in 1941. 
and IFK Gothenburg has won it six times, most recently in 2013. They're sold out. But I guess, I, so I was confused. I thought they were playing all these home games during the cup. But it actually, uh, you, you they draw in a different city hosts it. So Gothenburg is the host, but it's not actually a home game for IFK. So they can't play like they're, they can do like do their usual pre-match stuff. Because it's run by the Swedish Football Association. Well, that sucks. Yeah. But the winner of the cup goes to the uh, Europa League qualifying, as we said. But I guess they're already in that stage because they finished second last year. And the cup, it's named after the king of Sweden between 1950 and 1973, Gustav VI. He was a pretty decent king. There you go. I'll take your word for that. Uh, you probably shouldn't. No, no, no. I just assume like, like my Swedish knowledge is obviously not. Uh, I would be impressed with myself though if I did know much about. Uh, yeah. If I didn't know that much about him off the top of the bat. So they are playing Orbro SK, and uh, like IFK Gothenburg, they are both founded at coffee shops. I did not know that. It's a good place to have a team formed. And- Orbro, you know, Orbro is a mid-table team, so this is like a, this is gonna be a big game for them. They get a little, they get a shot at uh, getting into the Europa League qualifying. But they uh, have AstroTurf in their stadium, which I do not approve of, and neither does well, Anders. I can't root for them then. Yeah. So uh, looking forward to the game. Who maybe to watch out for if you're gonna if you're gonna tune in on Swedish TV or elsewhere. Uh, Gustav Svensson was good in their last. Uh, in their last game. He's one of their defensive midfielders. But uh, Anders' scouting report is really more of a team effort, solid all over the field. Impressive uh, central defender pairing. They brought in Thomas Rohn from Norway to pair with uh, Matthias Bjarsmer. Bjarsmer? Bjarsmer? And they've only conceded 4-8. and eight. Uh, Gustav Engel, the Swedish Adonis I've uh, referred to on the podcast, is uh, had knee surgery recently. I forgot to mention that before. Um, but I'd say keep an eye on on Las Aviv. Sort of been my uh, my favorite so far from the few games I've been able to watch. And apparently, he's on the market. Might be on the move this uh, this winter during the transfer window. Can the Mets afford him? <laughs> they wanted. Uh, he told me they wanted like twenty million Swedish kronar, which I guess is like five million dollars or three million dollars, something like that. Somewhere between three and five million dollars. I think for three or five million dollars, he can play shortstop. Yeah, good athlete, certainly. I should mention as part of our regular IFK Gothenburg update, they did win their last game uh, to nothing against Kalmar FF, and due to uh, Malmo drawing on Monday, they are once again top of the table. But they do have a, a big rivalry game with AIK out of Stockholm coming up uh, on Thursday. I think AIK they, is in fourth right now. Last I checked the table, they're gonna win. I have faith. I'm I'm, I'm pretty confident. They're gonna win the cup and uh, take the momentum forward into the rest of the uh, Allsvenskan Liga season. I will say too, I found <laughs> I was in my craft beer place the other day and I noticed they had a uh, Recorder League cider, which apparently is from Sweden. I was thinking of grabbing some for the cup final, but I wanted to find out like, it was like a legit Swedish beverage, and Anders told me it is, but it's aimed at the uh, 18 to 25-year-old female consumer. <laughs> um, so very, it's not like a dry English cider, but I'm going to try it anyway. What the hell? 
Yeah, why not? Yeah, if it's the Mike's Hard Lemonade or the Wine Cooler of Swedish Beverages, I'll, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> no one has to know who the target audience is. Yeah. So that's your IFK Gothenburg update. And that just about wraps things up uh, for this week on Amazing Avenue Audio. Steve, I'll get you one last uh, plug-in for the ROH show. Anything else good that you uh, enjoyed there? Um, Let's see. Adam Cole versus AJ Styles is a very, very good match. So is AJ Styles legitimately good now? <clears throat> I, th- I think he is. That's so weird I, to me. I was, never liked him like during his first run on ROH at all. Trying to, th- I mean, I had, you know, I was in the back row, so I've kind of had a obstructive view because there were people in front of me. But he did some sort of, it, it looked like a, a brain buster on the ring apron mat. You know, it was just, it looked very sounded very painful um what else what else um i'm thankful that i didn't take amtrak in around <laughs> yeah i if i did then that would be a second trip to philadelphia that i really got screwed up yeah so and i have tickets to the are you NXT. Going to the NXT show? I am. I'm a glutton for punishment. Oh. Going back to Philly. Couple I considered going to the Albany one. It's just my schedule is too packed right now. I'm going to the NXT show, so I uh, and I have work the next morning. So oh, I assume I, I, I'm going to be getting home at like one thirty ish and getting up at four thirty ish. So I've called stupid stuff like that before. It usually involves like trips to Delaware and crap. Yeah, and the old Super Eights. I figure this this roster of NXT isn't going to be together for much longer, so I want to yeah. see it. I want to see it while it lasts. That's fair. Hopefully, this Mets roster won't be together for much longer either. He hasn't scored any runs. Mm. Well, if they gets broken up, I don't know if it's good or bad. So. Yeah. So I guess we'll uh, wrap things up here, so we can go watch. Uh, figure out how the Mets are going to lose this game one nothing. Which is the thing that probably will happen. And we'll be here to talk about it next week on another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio.